Well, it's been said that everyone loves a good story. I'm sure for all of us at some point, you can remember a time in your life when you've been captivated by a great story. Maybe as a kid, you stayed up past your bedtime, completely enthralled by a story you just couldn't put down. Or maybe that was even you last week. We've all sat on the edge of our seats as we had a friend tell an exciting and exhilarating story of their latest adventure. Or maybe you've been guilty of clicking the Play Next episode button for the fifth time in a night after a cliffhanger has left you unable to stop. You need to know what happens next. But why is this? What is it about stories that is so attractive to us? Why is it that a well-told story is almost irresistible? Recent research suggests that our brains are actually hardwired for narratives. One neurobiologist argues that story is a basic principle of mind. Most of our experience, our knowledge, and our thinking is organized as stories. He goes on to say that narrative structure is essentially uh, not, it's essential not only for effective communication, but also for thinking itself. The reason that children everywhere plead, tell me a story, is not because they are seeking amusement or they have a biological craving for attention. Instead, it arises out of a genuine human need to make sense of life, something that is actually communicated best through storytelling. Stories not, do not merely tell us about life. Stories are the essential means for us to experience life. It makes perfect sense, then, that the Bible is one grand story. It's a meta-narrative, or perhaps a mega-narrative. It begins like a story, and it ends like a story. We discover our self-identity by viewing ourselves within the story itself, not merely as onlookers or observers, but as active participants within this great drama. We learn where we came from, we learn how we should live, what our final destiny will be, all in light of the biblical narrative. Most importantly, though, unlike some of our favorite stories, the Bible which tells this grand narrative of the whole world is completely true. It tells the true story, the story of our entire universe. It's not that stories are a part of human life, but that human life is a part of God's story. Your life and my life are pieces of this great story. Over the past few weeks, we've been exploring this magnificent drama revealed in Scripture. We've been looking in particular at the theme of God with us, which unfolds from the beginning of the Bible in Genesis through the rest of the books of Moses, Exodus through Deuteronomy, through the historical books of the Old Testament with Joshua, and the people of Israel, David, and the kingdom. We then traced it into the prophets and saw that despite human rebellion and the sin of God's people, there was still a promise. There was still hope for God with us that would be realized ultimately in this Messiah who would come and usher in God's presence, his kingdom. He would be Emmanuel, God with us. 
This is the story that the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament starts. It's what it points us to is a Messiah to come and bring salvation to God's people. And last Sunday and over the last few days as we celebrated Christmas, we arrived at the climax of this theme. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth is born of a virgin and he is God in the flesh. He is God with us, the Messiah the story which began in the garden find its, finds its climax here, its crescendo in the incarnation. After his death and resurrection, Jesus ascended to heaven and he took up his throne and reigns as king. He's no longer present here on earth, but after telling his disciples that he'd be with them until the end of the ages and then leaving, we wonder, well, is God still with us? Emmanuel has left. Thankfully, the story of God with us does not end there. The great drama of Scripture from opening to closed is most concerned with the relationship of God and his people, God with us. It finds its climax in the incarnate Son, but it finds its conclusion in the new creation. The story, as we'll see, is not yet finished. As the entire year has made clear, things are still not as they should be. You and I have not yet experienced God's presence in its fullest of expressions. We haven't received all the blessings purchased for us by Christ and promised, for, promised to us by him. Ultimately, then, we await the new heavens and the new earth where all of creation will be renewed and restored, sin defeated forever, evil gone, the saints dwelling with God for eternity. This hope, this not yet, this conclusion to the biblical story is what we will explore today in Revelation chapters 21 and 22, the very last pages of the Bible. The book of Revelation, if you're not familiar with it, is a fascinating one. It's mysterious, confusing, and awe-inspiring, and serves as the capstone to the entire scriptures. It falls into what is called the apocalyptic genre of biblical writings, and it means it employs highly symbolic and visionary, uh, visionary texts to focus on the end times and on what will happen in the future. And that, in part, is what makes the book so unique, but it also makes it a challenge to interpret. If you were joined, uh, joined me last fall, we led a 13-week led a study through the book of Revelation on Sunday nights, and we talked a lot about what it means to read and interpret the book responsibly, because there's a lot of uh, nonsense out there about, about the book of Revelation. And so before we dive in, I think it's important to at least remind us about how the book of Revelation is going to communicate to us as, as a part of what we call apocalyptic literature. It's going to first and foremost communicate its meaning through skillful and deliberate presentation of highly symbolic visions. And these visions are going to be consisting of images drawn from the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures. And as we'll see this morning, that's 
certainly true of these last two chapters of the book of Revelation. They are just full of imagery from the Old Testament. They're packed with allusions to the prophets and the Psalms and the uh, early books of the Bible. But through this symbolism, through this uh, sometimes scary and confusing imagery, we, we find some of the most, I think, astounding and glorious truths of God's word. And it will make a fitting end to, uh, to the whole scriptural story, but also I think it makes a fitting end for us to discuss as we, we conclude what has been uh, quite the year. And so Revelation 21, if you haven't turned there, please open your Bibles to the first verse. Revelation 21 marks the beginning of the end, the conclusion of the entire biblical story. John, who's the author of the book and the recipient of these divine visions, he articulates this, uh, this new creation that he has witnessed. He records here the vision which he received from Jesus, which details what will take place at the end of history. And so the first eight verses of chapter 21 announce the coming new creation. In verse 1, John witnesses the actualization of the promises that were recorded in the Old Testament. Isaiah 65 and 66 foretold the new heavens and the new earth that would come. And here, John sees the first and the former things that have passed away. Now, what this doesn't mean is that the old creation is annihilated, that it's just blotted out of existence. And speaking of a new creation... What John envisions is a renewal and transformation of the old. The first heaven and earth will pass away in the sense that they are transformed and cleansed of evil. This, emphasis, uh, this, em- this is emphasized also in the mention of the absence of the sea. Does this mean that there's not going to be any oceans in the new creation? Well, no. In the book of Revelation, the sea represents Wickedness. It represents uh, deadly force and destruction. This is where the beast in Revelation arises. And so by saying there's no sea, we understand that in the new creation, nothing destructive or deadly will be present. As the new creation dawns, what John observes is a holy city, the new Jerusalem, in verse 2. The city is sinless and pure, completely devoted to God And this stands in stark contrast to the other city which John has talked about in the book. In chapters 17 and 18, we find this detestable harlot Babylon who represents the idolatrous world system, the city of sinful humanity that is opposed to God. And so the city that John describes here is completely in contrast to it. This new Jerusalem is not an earthly city. It's transcendent. It comes down from God in heaven. The earthly Jerusalem pointed forward to a heavenly Jerusalem that far surpassed the one located in physical Israel. This language is symbolic. We shouldn't expect a literal city to descend from the sky at the end of history. John's description here is Figurative, he pictures the city as a beautiful bride. This draws images from Isaiah 62, 
where it says, As a groom rejoices over his bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Over you. Here we have Christ united with his bride, the New Jerusalem. And at this point, we might wonder, well, is the New Jerusalem a place or is it a people? It's a city, but it's talked about as a bride and we know that the church is the bride of Christ. Well, I think the answer is both. The city is both a place and a people. And this will become clear as we work through this passage. The new creation will be like a city, serving as the place from which God rules and containing the excitement and grandeur of a bustling metropolis. Yet it also is about the formation of a people. It's described as a radiant and flawless bride. The coming new world includes both a people and a place. And in verse 3, I think we find what might just be some of the most incredible words in the entire Bible. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity. And he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. Throughout the biblical story, as we've seen over the past few weeks, there's this promise that God makes to the recipients of his covenants. He says, I will be with you. I will be your God. You will be my people. And here we see in eternity this is fulfilled. This is true as the Lord is united with his people forever. The fact that it's peoples, not just people, is significant. This group that makes up the people of God is from all nations, from all tribes, all tongues. There's diversity to this people. As Yahweh promised Abraham, his blessing would extend not only to the Israelites, but beyond the entire world. The word used here for dwelling is the same as tabernacle. In the new creation, God's tabernacle presence will be with humanity. Now, in the past, God especially dwelt among Israel in the tabernacle and then in the temple. Both of these, however, pointed to something far greater. Jesus himself, in the book of John, says that he is the new temple. And we know from the writings of Paul that the Spirit has filled the church which is the body of Christ, and it contains the very presence of God. Now, in the new creation, God will dwell in the new Jerusalem, where the entire universe is his temple. One writer asserts that Revelation 21.3 could be said to sum up the message of the entire Bible. Another way to summarize this verse is God with us. Indeed, the new creation of verse 1, the city bride of verse 2, and the tabernacle dwelling of verse 3, they all portray the same thing, God's personal and relational presence. Among all the blessings of the new creation, the presence of the triune God with his people is most certainly supreme. What makes the new creation so thrilling is fellowship with this God. Father, Son, and Spirit. The glorious realities of verse 3 are what guarantee the promises of verse 4, where God says, 
He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. The sin and sorrow of our present world will be no occasion for sadness or mourning. Creation will be perfect and complete, and one day there will be no reason to cry. There will be no feelings of pain. In a world, though, where we face these agonies daily, the words found here sound ludicrous. How can God say there will be no more pain, no more grief and crying? This isn't an unfounded human sentiment, some wish that we might have. These words are a verity assured by the king himself. Look at verse 5. The mighty one speaks from his throne and he says, These words are faithful and true. The new creation will consist of life, fruitfulness, and pure, everlasting joy. Joy greater than anything we have tasted here on earth. Death will have been defeated, thrown into the lake of fire. God's people will embody the description of Isaiah 35, which says, The ransomed of Yahweh will return and come to Zion with singing, crowned with unending joy. Joy and gladness will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee. The Lord Almighty declares, I am making all things new. The one who has existed from before the foundations of the world and who reigns over all of history intends not simply to make new things to replace the old, but instead he's making all things to be new. This statement, I am making all things new, it's performative or efficacious. The words of God are always effective What he declares to be new becomes new, just as the words of a minister declaring a couple, husband and wife, affects a new reality. When God says something will be, he says something is, there is a surety of their coming to pass. When the new creation is inaugurated, the Lord will announce, it is done, verse 6. Just as he declared following the creation of the world in Genesis 2 and also the achievement of Christ's atonement on the cross, it is finished. So in the new creation, in its fullness, we will hear one more time, it is done. And this will mark the end of history when everything that the Lord has purposed has come to pass. He who has realized his sovereign decrees, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is always in control will complete what he has purposed. Isaiah 46, 10 says, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. This sovereign God is the one who reigns over history and who guarantees that we will see this new creation. This sovereign and eternal God is also abundantly gracious For as we see in verse 7, he promises to quench the longing and spiritual thirst of anyone who is willing to come and drink from him. He freely offers as a gift of life the water 
without price. This is promised to those who overcome, who persevere, and we see this as a central theme throughout the entire book of Revelation, that it's important for God's people, it's necessary that they persevere, that they endure, that they conquer, for it's only those who conquer who will receive such blessings. We see that those who fail to do so, that those who give themselves over to evil and refuse to repent will be cut off from the joy of God's presence. Following the announcement of the new creation in verses 1 through 8, John now provides an additional perspective on the new Jerusalem. He uses more symbolic language, more allusions to the Old Testament, Old Testament, and he provides what is a glorious depiction of the future dwelling of God. After being shown by, uh, he's, he's told by an angel that he's going to be shown the bride, the wife of the lamb. He's transported in the spirit to a great high mountain. This is just as the prophet Ezekiel was brought to a mountain to see the building of a city temple. John witnesses here what is the fulfillment of Ezekiel's visions. They were centered on the future presence of God with his people, and that is still what John sees, God dwelling with his people. And in the next few verses, he describes the appearance of the city, which is radiant and beautiful. It's shimmering with God's glory. As in verse 2, the bride is identified with the holy city, and in the same way, it's linked with the people of God, the bride and the city. Once again, it's a, it's a place and a people. In verse 12 and following, uh, it becomes very detailed regarding the walls and the uh, foundation and the gates. This might seem a bit trivial or a bit random, but there's significance to every detail that John includes here. So the 12 tribes of Israel that represent the, uh, that, that are on the gates of the city. These represent the fullness of the people of God from the Old Testament. It represents all of the Old Testament saints who are in the city. And in connection with that, the names of the apostles, the 12 apostles, represents the believers from the New Testament and together the twelve and the twelve, the tribes and the apostles, this represents the fullness of the people of God. You have the foundation and the gates in this city, in this new Jerusalem, are all of God's people. All of the members of the new Jerusalem who belong to the true Israel. It's not just two distinct groups, the church and Israel. It's one unified people of God united in the new covenant, those who have through Christ come to know God and obey him. After describing these outside features, he details the measurements of the city and the building materials. This is similar to Ezekiel 40 and Zechariah 2 where there's an angel with a measuring rod who measures the city. And what that signifies is the protection and safety of the entire city. The specifics about the city's length and its width and the mention of stadia and cubits might seem boring and irrelevant. But again, these details are beautiful. They represent magnificent realities of the new creation. 
the measurement of 12,000 stadia, 12 times 1,000. It communicates the perfection and completeness of the city. The height of the wall, 144 cubits, 12 times 12, symbolizes the absolute safety and security of the city. It's impregnable. It's unbreachable. One of the most incredible details, I think, is found in verse 16, where we read that the length, width, and height are equal. The only other perfect cube in the Bible is the most holy place of the temple in 1 Kings 6. So what John is telling us here by mentioning the dimensions of this new city is not that it's just a giant, about 1,500-mile-long block in the sky, but no, he's saying it's a massive, holy place. The entire city is the holy of holies where God himself dwells in the new creation. The entire universe is like the most holy place of the temple. And this continues as he lists all these stones, all these jewels which make up the foundations of the new city. The main idea is that because the city is home to God himself, it reflects his glory and splendor, the city will be indescribably beautiful. The new Jerusalem, both the people and the place who mirror the triune God's majestic glory are reflected in this design. The 12 varieties of jewels on the foundations match closely with the stones that were placed in the high priest's uh, breastplate. This also fulfills Isaiah 54, which reads, Poor Jerusalem, storm-tossed and not comforted, I will set your stones in, uh, in stones of turquoise and lay your foundations in lapis lazuli. The Lord promises at the end of time to create a city that is glorious and beautiful, a dwelling fit for the king of the universe and for the king's people. As we reach the end of chapter 21, it describes what it's like in the city and for its inhabitants. In verse 22, John makes a stunning observation. He says that there's no temple inside the New Jerusalem. The reason is because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are the temple. Under the Old Covenant, the container for the divine presence was a physical building. The, stru uh, the structure was either the, the tabernacle or the temple. And here we find that like a cocoon that is shed, there's a new physical container for God's presence, and it's all of the universe. The entire universe is now where God dwells, and his people enjoy unrestricted access to him. The point of this is that God is with us. He will be with us. At the end of Ezekiel's vision of this future temple city, he's told that the name of the city will be Yahweh is there. This future New Jerusalem will also be called Yahweh is there, God with us. Here we also find the lamb sharing in the glory of God. He is equal. He shares the throne. He receives worship the new creation doesn't need a sun or a moon because the triune God provides light. It directs his people. It provides them with nourishment and 
sustenance and enlightenment. Verses 23 through 25 show us more ways in which this new Jerusalem fulfills and exceeds the prophetic hope of the Hebrew Bible. It draws on Isaiah 60 and shows us that God's heavenly city will include all ethnic groups as the nations walk in the light of the Lamb. The nations who formerly were estranged are brought in. They are allowed access to God if they repented and believed in the Lamb. When he describes the wealth and honor of the nations being brought into the city, John is likely telling us that every good and beautiful thing from the old creation will be in the new creation as well. Nothing of beauty will be lost. It will be present and perfected in an incorruptible way. We continue to see in the rest of the chapter the safety of the city. We see the height of the gates and the walls. We see the absence of night. What is clear about this new Jerusalem is that there will be no evil. There will be no enemies. There will be no danger. The doors don't need to be locked because God is there. God is present. It will be pure and perfect. And finally, in chapter 22, we find another description of the new creation. It moves in another direction, and it describes this new creation in an Edenic-like way, like the Garden of Eden. They're patterned in some of the same details about uh, the, the fruit and the trees. And yet, in Revelation, we don't find that we're going to just return to Eden, or we don't see that uh, God is going to do exactly what he did at first. No, rather the revelation, New Jerusalem, is better. It's more perfect. You could say that Revelation's New Jerusalem out Eden's Eden. It's even more glorious. Just as a river ran through the garden, so the new creation has a river, but it flows directly from the presence of God. It is providing healing and nourishment and refreshment for God's people. The tree of life from the garden is here, but it represents eternal life and fellowship with God. It's the tree that provides healing to all peoples, to the nations. And in verse 4, we reach what I think is, is one of my favorite verses in, in Scripture as a conclusion to this glorious vision of the new creation. It says, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. God's people who are in this city will see his face. We've seen throughout scripture before that no one can see the face of God. They will die. And yet, in the new Jerusalem, in glory, in perfection, we will be in the presence of God. We will be his. He will be ours. God will be with us. And we will see his face. What a glorious, glorious promise. His name will be on our foreheads. What that represents is the ownership of, of God to us. He, or he, he owns us. But it's not a harsh ownership. It's a loving Master who we humbly submit to. And we see earlier in the book of Revelation, 
that those who refuse to follow God are marked by the beast on their foreheads and they are enslaved to him. In contrast, God's people bear his name on their foreheads, just as the high priest who would enter the temple once a year into the most holy place had holy to the Lord on their forehead. Now all believers will be priests of God. They all will enjoy access to the Lord forever, for all of eternity. We will return to the original ideal when God created man and woman to be priests, rulers, kings, of stewards of his creation. Where Adam and Eve failed and the second Adam succeeded, those who are in Christ will regain this position, this partnership with God. And in verse 5, at the end of this section, the Lord who gives them light says they will reign forever and ever with him. And we're invited back in to God's intention, God's desire to dwell with his people. The coming new world transcends our understanding and our experience. John here is describing the indescribable. The most important feature of the new creation is not what we will do, but whom we will see. The greatest joy here will be fellowship with God and with the Lamb. John doesn't concentrate on seeing and enjoying one another or the things we might do or experience, though they will be great and glorious. He fixes our attention on the beauty of the city, which is lovely because the Lord is there. So friends, I ask you, does your heart thrill at the prospect of seeing God? Do these verses that tell us of our future inheritance when we will be in the presence of God, do they make your heart sing and rejoice? Do they provide you with the endurance to persevere despite the trials of our day and age if we don't get excited about this, if we don't get excited about seeing God, then something is wrong. Being saved isn't about just going to heaven when we die and enjoying life and getting everything we ever wanted. No, our salvation is about getting God. In the gospel, we get God. God is the gospel. And this is the great joy of the Christian. The great hope is that one day we will see the face of God. What makes the new creation so dazzling is not gold or jewels, but rather the very presence of God, the whole earth being his holy of holies, all things being summed up in Christ, his plan being obtained, and we who are in Christ will see him face to face. We will see the king in his beauty, and that is our hope. And so as we continue to endure hardships as we continue to feel the pains of a world that is not yet glorified. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus Christ.
and the future hope we have of seeing him face to face. Would you please pray with me? Father, you are so gracious to have included us in your plan for all of the world. The story that you began before the world was created and will conclude in the new heavens and the new earth. You have graciously invited us to join and experience in life and fullness. We pray that for each of us you would grant us the grace to endure, to persevere, to conquer. We pray that you by your spirit would uphold us and cause us to cast our gaze to Christ as we eagerly await his return in glory. It's in his name we pray, amen.